Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tatz, to the final installment on genetics. It's been fascinating so far. And I believe in this episode, you're going to discuss what you've mentioned previously, the Jewish gene, to see if there's anything that traces us all back. And you mentioned we're going to discuss whether it's been proven that we come from one or maybe various mothers, which could be problematic. And also, if you still have time, I'd like to hear a bit about the cutting edge stuff, anything modern, anything developing, any breaking news that you could share with us exclusively here. Thank you. Well, I'm not sure. Yes, thank you. Thank you again. I'm not sure. Absolutely exclusively, but there is, in fact, um, breaking news in genetics. Very exciting things happening as we speak, and I'll tell you about a couple of those. Not sure we can fit it into one session, but let's see how far we get. The first point is the so-called Jewish gene, or how can you identify people on a population basis? We spoke in our last session about criminal investigations and so forth. What about what we call population genetics? Where do we come from? Jewish currents of emigration and movement. You know, what does genetics have to tell us about these things? Well, perhaps the most interesting is indeed the Jewish gene. A few years ago, it's been discovered that Ashkenazi Jews, at least, have a unique genetic haplotype or genetic pattern. Now, research is being done on Bukharian Jews and Sephardi Jews. To date, the clearest genetic pattern has been discovered in Ashkenazi Jews, and I'll tell you about that. Before I do that, let me give you a little bit of background to introduce the subject. And that goes back about 20 years to the discovery of a pattern that is unique to Kohanim. Now, our listeners will know that in Judaism, we have Kohanim, Levim, Israelim. We have uh, different groups. Of course, none of us are jealous about the others. You know, being well-adjusted means fitting into your identity. So if you're a Kohen, then of course we give you blessings and, you know, you have extra responsibilities, extra privileges. If you're a man or a woman, we don't consider either one superior. Well-adjusted means fitting your role, you know, the way it was given to you. So, of course, we spoke about uniqueness previously. And the, the, the correct usage of your uniqueness is to bring it to full expression, not to want someone else's. So we have Kohanim, we have Levim, Israelim, each one has his or her own privileges and obligations. Now, here's a fascinating story about Kohanim. There's a doctor called Dr. Carl Skarecki. He's a Canadian physician, a geneticist, among other things. Today, I think he's the head of the medical school in, could be in Haifa today. But his early career was in, was in Canada. And Dr. Skarecki happens to be a cone. Now, Dr. Carl Skarecki was sitting in shul in synagogue one Shabbat morning all those years ago. And he noticed a man being called up for an aliyah, giving a calling to the reading of the Torah, who is a Yemenite Jew for Kohen. Now, this Yemenite Jew looks like a Yemenite. Dr. Skarecki looks like a Western Canadian Jew. They do not have the same physiognomy. And as the Yemenite man went up to make his blessings, Dr. Skarecki was musing to himself that if that man's a Kohen and I'm a Kohen, that means we descended from the same individual. We have the same father. Being Kohen absolutely means that you are descended from Aaron Akon Aaron, who lived 3,300 years ago. And of course, an unbroken chain is necessary to define you as a Kohen. And then Skarecki suddenly realized, today we could prove that. 
Today we have genetic testing that we can use to prove with virtual certainty whether two people are in fact descended from a common ancestor. And Greco decided to test it. <laughs> now, how does the testing work? I won't bore our listeners with all the technicalities. But briefly, we use what's called a molecular clock. And the system works like this. Let's say you have two individuals who are brothers. So they will have inherited a common set of genes from their parents. We're talking here about what we call the non-coding regions in the DNA. And these DNA patterns between the two brothers will be virtually identical, but not completely identical. Because in every set, in every period of reproduction, in every generation, a little click of a mutational clock creeps in. In other words, you'll have a string of genes that are the same, but there'll be a small variation, so-called random mutation in part of the genes, and that will distinguish the two brothers. Now, of course, that difference will be inherited and passed to the next generation. But in the next generation, the cousins will have another click of the molecular clock, and the second cousins will have another click. And we know the mutation rate, and we're pretty confident that it's been constant over a few thousand years of history. And so we can tell whether two individuals are brothers, first cousins, second cousins, etc. We can tell with precision exactly how many generations have gone by between a common ancestor and anyone alive today. A recent study found that any two Jews on earth are 10 times more closely related than any two random New Yorkers. Wow. So we can go back. Now, how long ago the common ancestor lived, we cannot be perfectly sure about because that depends on how old people were when they were having their children. That would be a, a matter of speculation. But we can certainly tell exactly how many generations have clicked by since a common ancestor. Armed with that knowledge, Dr. Skorecki decided to set out and test it. Now, the problem with genetic testing is that when you inherit genes from your mother and father, you get what I would call a mix-and-match situation. You get some genes from your father, some genes from your mother, and there's a very rich recombination of those genes in the offspring. And the problem is in doing research, you never know which gene came from the mother, which from the father. So to do this test effectively, you'd need a part of your genome that you get only from your father or only from your mother. Well, as all our listeners know, there is part of your genome that you get from my father only, and that's called the Y chromosome. So of all your 23 sets of chromosomes, the one of them that we call the Y chromosome is passed down only from father to son because women do have an XX and men have an XY. So Skorecki realized he'd have to find something unique about Kohanim on the Y chromosome. Why? Because you're a Kohen. If your father was a Kohen, you're Jewish. If your mother was Jewish, but you're a Kohen, if your father was. Why is the more important designation of being a Jew passed down from the mother? We'll leave our feminists to wonder about it <laughs> till another time. But it so happens that that is the fact. And Skorecki started research. How did he do it? Well, Dr. Skorecki went to the obvious place to find Kohanim. Where would you find hundreds and hundreds of Kohanim at any one place and time? You'd go to the Kotel, the Western world, right? The Kaisal on on Cholomayad of Yontif. And there, when the blessing of the Kohanim is done, you'd find any number of Kohanim. He set up a little table and his genetic equipment. He wanted a little scraping of the inside of the cheek of anyone claiming to be a Kohen. And Dr. Skorecki required only that an individual claim that he's a Kohen. No other corroborating evidence. You could be orthodox, conservative, reformer. He took anybody who claimed that their father told them they were a coin. No more documentation than that. And the study was done in Oxford. In fact, our listeners can look it up. It's a fascinating study. And he was part of the research team, but most of the researchers were non-Jewish academics. And they came to the conclusion that this incontrovertible evidence that vast majority, I forget the exact percentages, but a tremendously high number of Jewish men claiming to be Kohanim today are descended from one man. 
Now, they say, according to their research, he lived 2,000 years ago. Well, we would disagree. We'd say something over 3,000, but that's not bad. And again, there's speculation about how old people were when they were having their children, but the number of generations is not, is not contested. And so here you have an academic, non-Jewish research, piece of research, corroborating an amazing, amazing claim. When we say that people called Kohanim today just on the basis of their you know, family story, tremendous number of them corroborated what, by what's called the CMH, Cohen Model Haplotype, which is a unique pattern, unique to Kohanim. And so that was a breakthrough in population genetics. And of course, it's been richly documented. And if our listeners would like to look it up, the best reference on that is a book by Rabbi Kleinman, who is a Kohen himself, lives in the old city of Jerusalem, and he's produced an excellent book. I believe it's called DNA, the Evidence, with photographs of the Kohanim and uh, Dr. Skarecki and all the research and so forth and so on. Very, very nice book and, of course, freely available. And there our listeners will find the full story. Can I ask halachically, if someone goes for genetic testing and finds they've got a CMH, may they get the privileges of a Kohen? No. In fact, we're not yet, as I mentioned in our last session, or perhaps the beginning of this one, we're not yet at the point where we would use that on its own to define someone as a Kohen. And I'll come back to that a little bit, a little bit more. But let me tell you the next step in, in the story. The first thing to know is that when you look at this academic research about the Kohanim, one thing struck me so forcibly that I, I was brought to tears. When you look in the research study, it's very dry academic language, of course, no one gets excited about this, you know, but this shows that the Jew story about, you know, being documented from one person, you know, is incontrovertibly true. There's one paragraph sandwiched in that study, which is very, very interesting. And it says this, an unexpected sideline, an unexpected incidental finding in our research was that no genetic study ever has shown such a level of marital fidelity in any population. In other words, if this tremendous percentage of people claiming to be Kohanim in fact match up to one ancestor, it means that in 3,000 years, every wife of a Kohen in that lineage must have been faithful to her husband. Because if one woman had conceived a child outside of the marriage, that lines had broken forever, and the discrepancy was 2%. The researchers said they have never seen a population, and you're talking about Jews with pogroms and rapes and pillages and wars and displacements. Can you imagine? Incredible. Incredible. So that means that the level of loyalty of wives of Jews, at least Kohanim, Rabbi Razan, don't ask me about about (laughs) others, but at least the lineage purity of marital togetherness and dedication and and loyalty, at least among the Kohanim, is something that they're so struck by, although the research wasn't looking for that at all, but was an incidental finding that these non-Jewish researchers pointed out, which I think is very, very significant. The second interesting feature, and if you look in, in, in Rabbi Kleinman, I think not only did he produce a book about it, but there's a nice internet article with much of his book freely downloadable. Another interesting sideline was this. As you know, I was raised in South Africa. Now, in what used to be called the Transvaal, which is an area in South Africa, today it's called Gauteng, in that part of the country, the northern Transvaal, was a tribe of black people called the Lemba people. The Lemba people, they are Africans, they look, you know, very Negroid and African, and they're called the Lemba people. These people claim to be Jewish. Now, as a child in South Africa, I thought that was funny. I mean, there's nothing, you know, they're not Jewish, they're Africans. Not only that, among them is a clan called the Buba clan, and they claim they're Kohanim. (laughs) <laughs> we thought that was even funnier. Their story is that they were descended from Yemenites who traded through Africa over the centuries, must have married converted women on their travels, and today there's a black tribe in Africa called the Lemba people. Well, Dr. Skarecki tested them, 
And believe it or not, the Buba clan has the Kohen gene. Wow. There are going to be a lot of surprises when the Mashiach. <laughs> I don't know if you saw, there was about a week ago on the internet, a lady doctor at Baragwanath Hospital, one of the big hospitals in South Africa, of course, used to be a black hospital in the days of apartheid. And they were questioning her. She's, a, I think, a professor of medicine, this black woman. Turns out she's a Lemba woman. And on the CNN news that interviewed her, they ask her, you know, the new variant of, of COVID, it seems to slightly uh, more children, you know, do you have enough ICU beds for children? And she said, yes, here in Baragwanath, we have a sufficient ICU beds for these children. Baruch Hashem. <laughs> I saw that. I didn't Did realize the background. Yes. Yeah. She's a Lamba woman. And quite unashamedly. <laughs> On an international interview, she said, Baruch Hashem, absolutely not. Yeah, that went so, viral. That went viral, <laughs> yes. She's a proud Jew, Jewess. I think that addresses what we mentioned in our individuality series, when you raise the question of Jews, many of us look alike, and we all look the same, we all fit into one box. <laughs> I think that uh, yes. softens it a bit. Well, when you say we look the same, you're talking about individual genetic Jewish clones. Of course, Ashkenazim look one way, and Yemenites differently, and so forth and so on. Yeah. Okay, so that is the Kohanic gene, and it was... Now, let me tell you something even more astounding. Even more astounding. Going back about the same period of time, when this genetic clock, molecular clock mechanism was discovered, people started putting it to use. One of the most interesting is two American studies that were done, which asked this question. If we can go back and see common ancestors, how many common ancestors do all humans on Earth have today? Where do we come from? And they decided to check it on the maternal line. Now, as I mentioned before, you get the mix and match problem. You need to find part of the genome that you get only from your mother. And this, of course, will lead us to Jewish genes as well. So they started looking. Now, you don't have a convenient chromosome like you do for the male, but there is another part of the genetic makeup of every human cell, which is uniquely maternal. And that is some DNA that's found in what is known as the mitochondria. Again, I'm sure that all our listeners have brushed up on their high school biology since we last spoke. And they will remember that in the nucleus of the cell are approximately 25,000 genes, in case that makes you, makes you feel special. A fly has about the same number, <laughs> but be that as it may, 25,000 genes in the nucleus. Surrounding the nucleus of the cell are tiny organelles known as mitochondria, which are energy-producing factories for the cell. For some unknown reason, they have about 21 to 29 genes. No one's exactly sure what they do, but these genes in the mitochondria are present, and they're inherited only from your mum. When a sperm fertilizes the egg in conception, all the father's mitochondria are deleted, and all that remains is maternal DNA. So in every cell of your body, while your, your nuclear DNA is a mix and match of your parents' DNA, your mitochondrial DNA is maternal. And therefore, we can check an unbroken lineage in the maternal line. So these researchers set out to, to find how many human beings were there originally. After all, as I said, we can trace ourselves back to a common ancestor, how many clicks of the molecular clock. And they came to the conclusion, both of these studies, amazingly, how did they do the study, by the way? They took a little snippet of placenta from babies being born throughout the world, right? Papua New Guinea and, and South Africa and South America. You're talking about hundreds and hundreds of samples. They came to the conclusion that this incontrovertibly proved that all humans on Earth today descend from one woman. They call her mitochondrial Eve. <laughs> How long ago did she live? They say about 120,000 years. Now, of course, we might not agree with 120,000, but it's a lot better than the couple of billion they were talking about before. So that is a remarkable, remarkable finding. 
I'll tell you something even more remarkable. Look this up yourself. Of course, I'm not making it up. Freely available. These studies have been widely publicized. Is that a question on Darwinism, on the whole approach? or? Well, let me tell you how they deal with that question. It was, I was about to say that. These two studies have an amazing conclusion. Or, again, dry academic language. This proves conclusively that all humans on Earth today share one common maternal ancestor. And then there's one added paragraph in both of these studies. Now, if you understand, this is dry academic stuff. There's no speculation. There's no emotions. The last paragraph says, of course, we know this is ridiculous. <laughs> we know this is impossible. We know that humans on Earth today are descended from many pre-hominid ape-like creatures. The only possible interpretation is there must have been many pre-hominid ape-like creatures, but for some unknown reason, the progeny of all died out except for one lucky female mm. who turned out to be the mother of us all. The survival of the fittest. Yes. So, of course, as we say in Judaism, right observation, wrong interpretation. <laughs> but that is a very, very interesting finding using maternal DNA. Now, that brings us... Have we overstayed our welcome, Rabbi Razi? Can we talk a bit no, more? No, we definitely can continue. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the Jewish gene. Now, to be Jewish genetically, of course, you'd need DNA from your mom. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not claiming that DNA is enough. And in fact, today we would not use the DNA, although I could foresee a time when this might be used in corroborating evidence. We have a lot of, of our co-religionists from the former Soviet Union where records were destroyed. And they come along saying, look, I was raised without any Jewish knowledge, but I remember grandmother lighting candles and so forth. But of course, you know, you, just to go back to our Cohen story, we have found Spanish and Portuguese Catholic men who have the Cohen gene. From the Inquisition days. Indeed. So these might well be men whose mothers were not Jewish, but they were men who were banished and exiled from Spain and Portugal and so forth and might have ended up marrying non-Jewish women. And indeed, these, these men are carrying the Kohanic gene. They're end Kohanim, right? Yeah. They're not Jewish. So we, of course, have to disentangle all of that. So here we have the question of looking at maternal genes. Now, this is what the research has found, and this indeed is breaking news. You asked me what is the cutting edge. This is being done as we speak. The... Unique, and if you'd like a reference for this, by the way, there is a good book on this. That's Jewish Population Genetics using the Ashkenazi gene that is being developed at, at present and used at present. The best reference, I think, on that is a book called Legacy by Professor Harry Ostrer, O-S-T-R-E-R, -E who's a geneticist at Yeshiva University today and an expert in his field. And it's a very, very good book. It's, a, it's a, on the academic side, but perfectly readable. And he shows population genetic maps and where we all come from. The theory is pretty strong that Ashkenazim descend from a few men from the Middle East and marry, who married women in the Italian area during the Roman exile, converted women, and therefore Ashkenazi Jews today are far more closely related genetically to Tuscan Italians than anyone else after that, Greeks and French. And uh, By the way, the research has shown very... So this goes back to days after the Chorban, when they yeah, came over. Well, about 2,000 years, Second Temple times. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we, we map very clearly back to that era. Again, this is speculation because it's population genetics, not individual pinpointed yeah. targets. And incidentally, virtually annihilates the theory that Ashkenazim are descended from converted Khazars. You know, the Kuzari led to a theory that in the Caucasus Mountains area was a Khazar people who became the Ashkenazim. People from that region have nothing in common with us genetically. So that's laid to rest, that particular theory. Now, this Jewish gene has been the subject of a lot of research. I'll tell you a couple of interesting examples. So again, what are we saying? We're saying that if you're an Ashkenazi Jew, you are likely to have a pattern that distinguishes you from 
other Jews around the world and, in fact, non-Jews around the world. And this would indicate a common heritage and a common lineage. And, as I say, it's not yet well-established enough to certify you as an Ashkenazi Jew, but it'd be very interesting and suggestive and possibly very helpful. So let me tell you a couple of examples of practical use. In Italy today, in Rome, three areas have been discovered where bodies, or shall I say bones, skeletons, have been found. They're not buried underground. They're buried in sort of stone receptacles in the, carved into the, into the rock. These three areas are suggestive of Jewish burials. In one place, there are more than 3,000 skeletons. They have some Hebrew and Greek inscriptions, and it's not entirely clear whether these are Jewish graveyards or not. One is near Mussolini's headquarters, in fact, directly under where they used to be. One's near the river, the Via Appia in, in Rome. So the chief rabbi of Rome, recently, and we're going back not that long at all, wanted to know whether he may take a little bit of bone to see whether they have the Jewish gene. The chief rabbi of Rome is Rabbi Ricardo di Segni. He's a, um, he's a, a Roman Jew going back. His family goes back 2,000 years to the exile. You know, many Italian Jews today are from Libya or other, other places, Italian-speaking countries. But there are Jews in Italy today who go back all the way to the Roman exile. And Rabbi di Segni is one of those families. Rabbi di Segni happens to be a doctor as well, as the best rabbis are. Mm-hmm. And um, Rabbi di Segni wanted to know whether he could use bone to see whether these bodies are Jewish. He asked Rav Weiss, Rav Asher Weiss in Israel and other authorities in Israel, and they debated the case. While that was happening, they were going very... The motive was to give them a Jewish burial? Indeed, to, to take care of the cemeteries, to make sure that they administered correctly. That's his portfolio as the rabbi of Rome. In fact, I was in contact with him recently to ask him these questions through a friend who's... Um, Emmanuel Abib, who's a local Italian gentleman who made the contact for me. And they noticed that in one of the cemeteries, these bodies are all buried in a unique position. Now, our listeners can't see this, but they were buried like this, with their hands by their sides. Now, all non-Jews are buried with their hands crossed across their chests. But all Jews are buried. And since that was absolutely unique to that particular location, not only that, Rabbi Rasner, they were buried like this, one hand up and one hand down. Strange custom that no one's mm. ever seen before, but all of them. And on the basis of that burial pattern, the rabbinic opinion was, do not disturb the bones. Those are Jewish bones. There's another place where about 30 skeletons... They didn't end up taking the DNA. No, they didn't need to. Didn't need to. That was sufficient evidence. Sufficient, yes. There's another place in Rome where about 30 skeletons were found, where the position was not useful. And Rabbi Weiss allowed them to take teeth. He did not want them to move the bones. But teeth, you know, the DNA is a very, very long surviving molecule. You can use DNA that's 5,000 years old. And so he allowed them to take teeth to investigate whether they map to the Jewish gene. And in fact, as we speak, you asked for current research. As we speak, the DNA is being tested to see whether they are, in fact, Jewish bodies. While we're speaking of Italy, in Bologna, around 1600, I think it was around somewhere between 1560 and 1660, somewhere in that period of time, the Jewish population of Bologna was exiled. You know, Jews have been expelled from almost everywhere. And at that time, in that region of what was not quite modern Italy, but that part of the world, the Jewish community of Bologna was exiled. The rich families took their dead with them. The poor families left their dead in situ. Next to this Jewish cemetery in Bologna, a convent was established. We're going back 500 years. And for 500 years, nuns from the convent have been buried on top of the Jews. You know, there are many cemeteries in Europe where people are buried in layers. You go to Prague, you'll sometimes see six headstones on one, on one grave. 
And so the non-Jews were buried on top of the Jews. Now, the community in Bologna today wanted to establish where they wanted to restore Jewish cemetery. After all, the Jews buried there. But it's critical to know where the non-Jewish bodies end and the Jewish bodies begin. So they approached the rabbis in Israel to ask, can we take little snippets of bone? Because we'll see a genetic difference at one particular level with certainty. Then they noticed that that would not be necessary. Because they noticed, and of course we're talking about skeletons here, Mm -hmm. that every single non-Jewish skeleton is buried with a ring on the finger with a crucifix on the ring. And so they know exactly where the non-Jewish bodies are and where the Jewish bodies begin. But these are some of the issues. Let me mention one more feature to bring our discussion to a close, a painful, a very painful incident where genetic identification is being used and also in answer to your question of what is being done at the present time. I'm sure many of our listeners know that in the 1950s and 60s, the Yemenites were brought to Israel. Thousands of Yemenite families. They were housed in 10 cities around the country and later, over time, absorbed into Israeli society. Unfortunately, a terrible, very, very painful scandal arose because going back to the 1950s and 60s, inevitably babies became ill in those communities. They were admitted to hospital and many, many babies disappeared. Many babies disappeared, talking about hundreds. The accusation was that the hospitals gave them away or sold them, sometimes to Holocaust surviving families who had no children. And when the parents came to visit their child in hospital, they were told your baby died. We couldn't wait for you, the child's buried. They were told where the child's buried. And there was extreme suspicion that in fact the children had not died. In fact, I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago in a bank in, in central London. It was a Yemenite fellow present. He came to told me afterwards his mother, who gave birth to his brother, walked out of the hospital the next day with a baby in her arms because her sister's baby disappeared the day before. And they told her, your baby died and we didn't, we, we didn't show you the body. Wow. So this has been a festering sore in modern Israeli history. And government after government has set up commissions. The Knesset has tried assiduously to investigate this terrible claim, and it's never been brought to closure. It's not clear what happened. Did it happen? Did it not happen? Did it happen partially? No one, no one knows. But of course, there are many Yemenite families today who are convinced that this happened to them, and it's been a tragic and extremely painful blot on modern Israeli history. A few months ago, the Knesset passed a law, the Israeli parliament passed a law, mandating opening the graves of those babies. Because DNA can be taken from those babies now and matched with families. Now, in many cases, the parents are no longer alive, but many siblings are. And we can take DNA from the remains of a child and identify with virtual certainty siblings. And then we would know if the babies are buried as claimed the children there are indeed the siblings of extant Yemenite families and exonerate the hospital authorities and so on and so on, all prove that in fact this was a big lie and that was not done. And as we speak, the graves are being opened and it could be within a few weeks we'll have a final closure on this very bitter issue. It's not so easy. The reason is that the graves are very small and as you know, people in Israel are not buried in coffins, apart from soldiers for special reasons, but civilians are buried directly in the ground and in fact, although now graves are separated by sort of cinder blocks underground separating graves. Mm, the ground then, could shift. The ground shifted indeed, good assumption. The ground has moved and being very small graves, not only that, but in some cases more than one child was buried in the same grave. So there'll be a lot of uh, expert forensic work that is going to be needed, but there's very great hopes that d- despite those variables, we will soon have an answer to this very, very anguished question that is plagued modern Israeli state. That brings to a close 
some of the fascinating ideas and elements in using genetics going back again to 9-11 and all the developments since then, not only in forensics, as we discussed in our last session, but identifying Kohanim, identifying people. I've given a couple of references that I'm sure people would like to look up today. This is all freely available. Some general stuff. We all descended from one woman. Very, very nice. It's, it's very beautiful when you see modern technology and science corroborating our spiritual story. Thanks for inviting me, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed our genetic discussion and look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you very, very much, Robert. I've certainly enjoyed it, and I'm sure the feedback will will prove that would be the case with the listeners. As usual, any feedback, comments, suggestions for future topics can be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you for listening, and thank you very much, Robert. That was a fascinating series. Mm-hmm.